I think it is called a black swan event. Now, as you all know, black swans are pretty rare. In fact, they were thought to not exist at all since back in ancient times, but there's actually a species of black swans in Australia. But the black swan became associated with something you did not expect, something very unlikely to happen taking place. So I was just wondering how many of you this morning uh, got up this morning and say, I'm pretty sure Pastor Jay is going to wear a Santa hat in the pulpit this morning. Would you just raise your hand? No, nobody, nobody expected that. It was totally out of the blue. And the second characteristic of a black swan event is it evokes a response. And uh, a few of you actually laughed, and uh, a lot of you smiled, and uh, you didn't expect it. It seemed a little silly. A black swan event will make an impact. And then the third characteristic of a black swan event is in our minds, we will try to figure out why it's really not that unusual. And there's something, you know, there, there's something about it here that's normal. And that was very easy to do because, well, it's Christmas time. So you probably thought, well, the pastor just wanted to say Merry Christmas. But he had a whole lot more involved in that. So a black swan event, something that is unpredictable, makes an impact, and we struggle in our minds to try to figure out some meaning to it. Now, that's exactly what happened this year when the COVID-19 virus struck and, you know, well, nobody could, at least nobody around here, predicted it, that's for sure. It came as a surprise. It made a huge impact on our lives, and we're still struggling to try to make some sense out of it all. And here's the question that most of us who are Christians have asked ourselves uh, at one time or another, and probably within the last seven days. And that question is this, well, how, how does this fit into what God's doing? If, if God really is in control of all things that happen, well, what do we make of the pandemic and, and a whole lot of other things? that have went on this year and even of the past week. Is God really in control when unpredictable things can happen? Now, last week we started on this message entitled, "Has uh, well, actually titled, God Has It Under Control. This is part two. We're going to finish last week's message. And what we focused on last week is what we call the sovereign will of God. This is what we might term the secret will of God. This is what God's doing in this world, but he hasn't told us how it all fits together. I used the 500-piece crossword puzzle. Crossword puzzle, that's not right. 500-piece jigsaw puzzle to try to illustrate this a little bit last week. And... We use the, the the thought or the idea that when you do a jigsaw puzzle, you really don't know uh, how it's going to look and how everything should go together. Unless you look at, of course, the picture on the front of the box, which I always do. 
because I figure that's got to make it easier and it's a very complicated task. But you see, God's putting together a puzzle, if you will, a, a, a tremendous amount of things that's beyond our imagination to figure out. He's, he's placing together and putting together and connecting together and he's, he's painting a beautiful picture of his will in this world. But we can't see the picture because it's not finished. And he doesn't provide us a picture in advance to know what it is. So in his sovereign will, he's doing this. Now, his sovereign will breaks down into two parts. What we call his efficacious will. Those are the things that God does in order to bring about a specific result. The second thing, or the second part of God's sovereign will, is what we call the permissive will of God. These are the things that God allows to happen. For example, he allowed Adam to choose to sin. He gave him a choice in the garden. He chose sin. God did not want Adam to sin, but he gave him that choice. Now, being then in the permissive will of God, Adam's sin brought about a lot of bad things, including death, into this world. But yet, God incorporates the things people do that he allows into his masterpiece that he is painting. The picture, the will of God, all fits together, and even the permissive will of God falls under his sovereignty. Now, that all being the case then, as we see these puzzles, pieces kind of, you know, incomplete, we can't really figure out how they fit together, we're apt to wonder, is God really in control? So in light of his permissive will in particular, we want to address that question again this morning. Is God in control of all things that happen in this world? And I submit to you that he is. God is in control. In fact, last week, in chapter 17 of Acts, we began at verse 24, and we noticed that God is in control of what every person is like. In other words, we're talking about his creative work. Verse 24 of Acts 17, it says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God made the world and everything in it. That includes you and me and everybody that's ever lived. He is the creator of it all. He not only created those of us that know him as Savior, but he created a whole world of people that reject him because he allows them that permissive will. And it's been that way century after century. And yet he made every person in a particular way to fit into that puzzle. And every group of people, every nation of people, to fit into what's happening in this world, and even the evil that is perpetrated in this world, and yet it falls under the sovereign will of God. He creates every person with a certain set of abilities, physical and mental, uh, a, a certain set of talents to be applied to what they're doing in this world and choices that they can make. And so doing that, he, he also gave us a personality that, that relates to our environment and to other people in particular ways. All of that falls under God's control. 
And then we learned last week that he also has determined how long every person lives. Look at our scripture again. At verse 24, continuing, he says, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Now, he made the world in all things, verse 24, the first part of the verse. Verse 25, the last part of the verse, he gives life, breath, and all things. Now, back in verse 24, where it says he made the world and everything in it, that's a past tense. That's something he does at a moment in time. He made the world, he made everything in it, and then as each individual is born into this world, they are made. Now, not directly as Adam was made from the the dust of the earth, but uh, through the, the process of procreation, yet God is involved in making us and creating us as the unique individuals that we are. Now, that's something that just happens in time. But when you get down to the latter part of verse 25, and it says, He gives, that's present tense. He gives, He keeps on giving, He's continually giving, And what is he giving? He is giving to all, to everybody, life, breath, and all things. So, uh, as each person is born into this world, there's this continual process of God giving life to new individuals that come into the world. And then it says he gives them breath. Why would he follow up the word life with breath? Because... He begins our life, He gives us life, and He sustains our life as long as we have breath. And uh, when we no longer have breath, uh, we pass from this life. So, He is the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and He literally sets the bounds on our life from the time we become alive to the time that we give up our breath. So, he determines how long we live in this world. It's a, it's a fortunate thing under the circumstances that sin came into the world. It's a fortunate thing that death is the punishment for that. Because who would want some evil person, and you can think of many of them through history, who would want all the most evil people in history to never die but to continue to wreak havoc in this world? So life is limited And it's another way that God controls all things and is sovereign. Now let's move on. We covered those two points last week. This week we want to add three more. So here's another one. He determines what every person has. Now we're talking not about life limited by our lifespan or life defined and limited by our abilities and opportunities. But now we're talking about our material possessions. He has determined what each of us have at our disposal to be able to do whatever it is we do in this world. How do we know that? Well, again, at the end of verse 25, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. There's the things that we have in this world at our disposal to use. So uh, he is providing for us our resources. Whatever resources we have, God gave them to us. James says in his epistle, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above. God provides everything we have in his way. He created it all. A man takes it, uses it, adapts it, uh, utilizes it. Uh, but everything that is of material in, uh, substance in this world, God created and provided to us. 
Now, he has provided more resources to some people than he has others. Now, uh, think about, uh, just for a minute, Venezuela. Uh, it was for years and years unknown, and then it was found out that Venezuela was very rich in oil, and they began to produce oil, and Venezuela became a very rich and prosperous country. And then, of course, you know, uh, communist dictators basically took over and ruined everything. But uh, there's a resource that God gave, and evil people then tried to usurp, and, and in, in their ineptness, I think they uh, didn't even... Uh, benefit much from it, but God is the provider of resources used by God's people and by unsaved people, by the world as large. All that is determined by God. Everything that any person or country or power can accomplish in this life is determined to some extent by the God-given resources that He has provided to them and that are at hand to them. Think about Luke chapter 14, verse 28. Here, the Lord Jesus was talking about this thing in, in, in one sense. And he says, you know, who would, you know, decide to build a tower or whatever it is you want to construct and not sit down first and count the cost? Well, the cost here is the resources we have to use to produce the outcome. If you're building a building, uh, that would be the building materials. Some things uh, don't require a lot of building materials, but they require a lot of brain power or they require a lot of our effort and time. But there's always a cost. There's always something that has to be consumed or put in to something that is made new and uh, beneficial in this world. Now, God, over the years, has placed... Uh, what turned out to be very bad nations, evil people, in possession of resources, but not enough resources to do everything they wanted to do. Because they did not have the resources they needed in uh, Nazi Germany, they could not conquer Russia because of the size of that, that nation and the weather they had to contend with. Uh, God's resources determine outcomes. Now, we as Christians, we are a little bit better off than what I've just described. Because we know God, and we can go to God in prayer, and we can change outcomes because God, if it is His will, can answer our prayers and bring about things that those people in this world are limited from ever understanding or coming close to. Think of the the boy who had the loaves and the fishes, and that was the only resource that Jesus had, but yet he fed 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children with that. Think of the oil that the widow lady had, and Elijah, realizing that she would, her sons were in bad shape, asked about their condition. She said, well, my sons are going to have to be sold into slavery because I can't support them. And he says, what do you have in the house? And she said, I got one little pot of oil. And he said, that's, he didn't say these words, but he said, you might as well have said, that's enough. You see, because pour it out, pour it into another container. And she began to pour and she began to pour and she began to pour and pour and pour and pour. Because we that know God have resources beyond this world. And we can rejoice in that. But resources limit our opportunities and ability for the most part, especially the unsaved world. Then number four, 
God determines when every person lives. He not only determines how long, we've already talked about that, but he he determines when we live in history. Again, let's look at verse 26 now. And he made from one, and he made from one every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Now, by the way, that means what it says. It's as plain as day. We all came from Adam. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what your physical characteristics are, whatever race you're defined as. We all came from one man and one woman. Now, we're not different from one another in the essence of the things that really matter. Now, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell, that is to live, to exist on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times. He's determined when everybody lives. He has determined when every nation rises to power and when that nation falls from power. He's determined the rise and fall of nations. He's determined, he has determined those epics and ages in history. And what we see is what? The same thing over and over. Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We see evil raise its ugly head. We see those come to power that is fearful and powerful and they conquer others and then they soon are gone off the scene. And over and over and over we witness these things. He has determined when, when it is that every nation rises and falls. Now, this means that there is a specific time slot, a perfect place in history for every nation and for every individual that lives and every person that makes up every nation. It's not an accident that you are living in this day and age. There is a purpose and a plan God has for your life and mine at this very moment. God is in control of history. Let me prove it to you. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Isaiah says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now Cyrus was the Persian king that allowed the Jews to go back after 70 years of captivity, exactly after 70 years of captivity, tell me God isn't in control. He told them before uh, before that. He told them when they went into captivity, they'd be there 70 years. 70 years later, Cyrus says, you can go home. Right on God's timetable. He said, you can go back and, and you can build the city and you can build the foundation of the temple. And Isaiah prophesies it, but Isaiah said this 150 years before Cyrus was born. 150 years before it happened. God said, here's what the king of Persia is going to do, and here's his name. That is pretty unbelievable, isn't it? That is magnificent. Now, let's take another biblical prophecy. Uh, one you may or may not have some familiarity with, and that is what we call Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel chapter 9. And here in verse 24, uh, Daniel is told this, God, he said, 70 weeks are determined. 
And Daniel prophesies, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now let's decipher that quickly. 70 weeks in Hebrew just simply says 77s. It means 70 increments of seven years or 490 years. Now, a little bit later in this passage, he says that after 69 of those 70 weeks of years has passed or 483 years, the Messiah will come on the scene. That's exactly what happened on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and officially officially offered himself to be king. Of course, he was rejected by the powers that be. He knew that ahead of time. 483 years. Daniel says, in verse 27, 69 weeks, Messiah is going to show up. And then he says, after that, two things are going to happen. He said, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And indeed, Jesus was crucified shortly after that. And then he says, the temple is going to be destroyed. It was about 40 years later, A.D. 70. And then he says, there's going to come somewhat on the, on the pages of history. We know him as the Antichrist, who is going to confirm that covenant with Israel for one week, that one remaining week of 70. And that's what's going to transpire during the tribulation period. What I'm saying to you is God has history mapped out. Now, he's revealed certain portions and periods of it and certain prophecies relating to it, but that doesn't mean that he's got his hands off the rest of the time. Everything is proceeding toward the end he prophesied. What is that end? Well, you can read about it in Revelation 17, Revelation 19, and well, pretty much the whole of the book of Revelation, especially the last few chapters. And we are living today in an age that is preceding what's described there in the book of Revelation. But we know that according to the prophecy of the end times, in those days there will be apostasy, there will be persecution of true believers, there will be a one-world government, there will be complete control of the financial system, and a complete, uh, up, up to a point, a completely orchestrated and sponsored state worship or state religion. That's exactly what we can see looking around in our world today, developing and and growing and leading exactly to what God said is going to happen. We cannot be overly distressed and overly concerned when we see this one world movement that is beginning to sweep our world today. And when we begin to see those in America want to you know, throw in, cash in our chips as a nation and, and become one world with everybody else. That's exactly what God says is going to happen. Now, it disturbs us in the short run. And it just, it, we, we want to see our nation prosper and we want to see freedom to worship God and serve God. We all do. And we long for that and we pray for that and we should work for that. But in the end, it's all coming to a much better conclusion than we could ever imagine in this life today at the end of the time he's marked out for these days and ages it'll be a perfect and wonderful existence awaiting so he determines when everybody lives this means that he has determined when 
the most evil dictators and, and powerful kings have ever lived. And there's probably some kings that, that existed way back in ancient times. If God would have put them over here in modern times, things would have been a lot worse than they were because of their abilities and strengths. You think of someone that he died at a very young age, but Alexander the Great basically conquered a known world in a very, very short period of time. A tremendous military leader. I'm glad he lived a long time ago. Now, God is in control of all of that. Let's move on. And this is the fifth and final point. He determines where every person lives. Where every person lives. Again, look at verse 26. First of all, he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And the boundaries of their dwellings. What does he mean? Where they live, where they exist, where they dwell. He's determined every nation's geographical location. By the way, we're not talking a whole lot about this on a personal level, and we'll get more into that next week, but he determined where you were going to live and what nation you were going to live. And and we have much to thank God for about that, uh, personally. Now, you go back to the book of Genesis once again, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. After the flood... God intended for man to spread out and populate the whole of the world and establish different nations. and re- They didn't do it. They, they instead stayed together, and they did so under the purpose of establishing and worshiping together in a godless pagan system. The Tower of Babel wasn't just a tower. It was a religious object, and it... It involved there in Babel a false religion and an idol worship. And everybody was, was drawn to it and, until God said, no, no, that's enough. And God confused the language and they couldn't communicate with each other. And God imposed language barriers and people began to spread out and assume their own uh, logical places where they could communicate with others. You see, God not only has determined all these factors, but God actually can intervene when and where he wants. In that case, he intervened to change the language to bring about his will. Now, every nation, not only then, as a result of that, has language barriers to deal with, but we have geographical boundaries as well. Think about the pursuit of world domination that uh, some dictator, some king, uh, some country has uh, followed at some point in history. You, you can think of a bunch of them. They were, they've none been successful, and none will be until the Antichrist at the very end of history as we will know it. Because God has set these boundaries that limit. Again, Hitler was limited in resources, and God said, you know, you're not going to take Russia. You're not going to take England. He bombed England, bombed England. He invaded Russia, and he looked to be successful there, but God set the limits. Geographically, he didn't have the manpower. He didn't have the uh, expertise. He didn't have the resources to do it. God defined his limits geographically. So, God sometimes intervenes. Think of what happened at Dunkirk. Anybody seen the Dunkirk movie? It was out a few years ago, a couple years ago. 
great movie, but and uh, but you really need to read the history behind that before you see the movie because God did a miraculous thing there behind the scene. You can see God's sovereignty all over what happened at Dunkirk. The whole basically English army was spared, and they used the civilian boats to go across the channel and pick them up and get them out of there because they were completely surrounded. And God imposed a weather pattern that inhibited the uh, the Germans from using uh, their air power to, to destroy the boats, and everything fell together. God was drawing a line, a geographical boundary at that moment in time. So God determines what every, what every person is in, in their makeup, in their creation. He determines how long every person lives. He determines what every person has. He determines when we live, and he determines where we live. And in the, jaw, in the broader concept of it all and, and then how it all fits together, he determines nations and empires and those who become powerful and he inhibits them. So a lot of his permissive will is thereby controlled. This is just what we can figure out and know from these few verses. But here's what I want you to take from this. If God is sovereign, and we know He is, and hopefully you know it even more so now, then we don't have to cower in fear every day of our lives for what's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus said, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. He said, you know, tomorrow will take care of itself. But worry about your, your, your legitimate concerns right now. You know, there's things that I'm concerned about, and, and there, you know, my, my struggle, as it is with you, is to keep what I con- am most concerned about and most worried about, keep it in the here and now. Rather than what's going to happen next week or next year or what's going to happen in five years or, or, you know, whatever. So this past week, I, I ask you to make a list of things that you were most concerned about. And uh, I also ask you to make it in pencil. How many of you remembered to make it in pencil? Oh, very good. That's why I gave you the erasers. <laughs> Everybody get an eraser? Who didn't get an eraser? All right, we got, a, we got all kinds of erasers over there on the pew where I sat. Uh, that eraser is so you can erase some things off of there. See, you're going to have to decide what's a legitimate concern and, and what's an uh, illegitimate worry. And the illegitimate worries need to be erased. If nothing else, put the eraser in your pocket to remind you of that. If you didn't actually do the list or you don't actually do the erasing. But remember, some things, some worries, some concerns need to be eliminated from that list. My wife wrote this all over 20 years ago. I want to share it with you in terms of what's on your list. She said, today, Lord, I will leave on my worry list only the situations in which I cannot rely on your strength, any needs beyond your ability to supply, and all circumstances outside your complete control. That's a pretty good statement. And it'll leave your worry list looking like this, completely erased, uh, once you separate today's concerns. Your worry list becomes, if, if we understand God is in control, 
then we got some erasing to do. In fact, since we don't have anything on our worry list, we could just erase worry list and make maybe substitute the word prayer. <laughs> prayer list, how about that? Isn't that better than a worry list? Amen. Well, I trust that this is something that will be of comfort and will be something that will bolster your spirit, strengthen your heart and mind in days in which we are afflicted on all sides by things that disturb us, rob us of our sleep, cause us to be on the verge of panic. Remember, God says in Colossians 3, verse 15, And so let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now that's a whole lot more possible if we understand that God, whose peace should rule our hearts, is a sovereign God.